0: Amen, and uh, what a blessing it is to be able to baptize my daughter today, to be able to worship with my family, to be able to sing to Jesus. Um, When my race is complete, may my lips just repeat, it's not me, it's just Christ in me. So all praise be to God and all glory to Him. We want to honor His name today. So um, if you have your Bible, let's open it and hear His word today. Uh, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. John chapter 3. Um, as you're turning there, and before we jump into this message, let me just reiterate what Phil said earlier, and that is that uh, I just want to welcome everybody who's here today, whether you are joining us here in person or whether you're joining us online, um, whether you are a regular church attender or if this is your first time here, or maybe, maybe you're a committed Christian or maybe you're a seeker or even a skeptic. I just want to welcome you into our church service today. Uh, We are a church that exists to help people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ who know Him and make Him known, and that's why we're here as a church, and uh, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Um, If you're joining us for the first time or maybe the first time in a while, we are on the third week of a sermon series called Brand New, and we are doing this sermon series because we believe that our Lord Jesus really does change people. We believe that he makes people different. We, he didn't just do it in Bible times, we believe that he does it still today in our times. We are experiencing his transformation in our lives and you can experience his transformation in your life. You don't have to do what you've always done because you don't have to be who you've always been. Jesus changes people. And that's what we're here to proclaim today and I hope that you have been changed by Jesus yourself. He may have you here today to change your life. Um, Two weeks ago, we began this sermon series with a general introduction about how Jesus changes sinful people. Um, Today, uh, last week, we got a little bit more specific about how Jesus changes tormented people. And we talked last week about really this whole idea of Jesus freeing a man who had been possessed by demons, um, we talked last week about the work of the wicked one in this world and uh, no doubt this past week we saw some of the works of the wicked one in this world when it comes to the shootings in Nashville, Tennessee or uh, even some of the, um, the sad events that happened out at Cedarville this week. I want you to know if you're a Cedarville student, our hearts are with you. Our prayers have been with you this week. Um, our hearts have gone out and our prayers have been with uh, the people affected by the shootings in Nashville but the reality is that the world needs the Jesus who changes people. The world needs the Jesus who changes people. And we believe that he can change people, even tormented people, sinful people. But today I want to talk to you about how Jesus changes religious people. All right? I want to talk about how Jesus changes religious people. Now, you know, when when I say religious people, I want to be clear about what I'm talking about here because... um, inevitably a bunch of us kind of have different views on what it means to be religious. In fact, if I was to kind of take a poll right now and I just asked you how many of you could consider yourself religious, um, some of you would raise your hand and say yes, some of you would say absolutely not, right? Even though we're all in church, right? So, you know, it's kind of like we have different views on what it means to be a religious person. Um, Different views on religion in general. You know that uh, the scripture actually talks specifically about religion. The Bible in the New Testament uses the word religion five times, Um, Four out of the five times that it speaks of religion It actually speaks about it in a negative way Um, In the book of Acts You see Paul referring to his previous uh, lifestyle As a Jewish Pharisee And all the religion attached to it uh, In a negative context In Acts chapter 26 You see Paul writing his letter to the Colossian church Where he writes to the church in Colossae And he says that some people have self-made religion That has no value Um, In James chapter 1 James writes about how some people have a type of religion that is dead and absolutely worthless. And so sometimes the Bible describes religion in a negative way. And so that's the sense in which I'm talking about religion or religious people today. Today we're gonna see how Jesus changes religious people. In 2019, a man named Warren Wearsby uh, went to, to be home with the Lord. Warren Wearsby, before he died, was an influential pastor, writer, a theologian. He wrote often for the Christian magazine, Christianity Today. He did a radio broadcast called Back to the Bible. Um, He wrote curriculum for Christian universities like Grand Rapids uh, Baptist Seminary, like Trinity Divinity School, like Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, After he passed away, he had a big, giant library collection that he actually donated to Cedarville University. So if you go to Cedarville's Bible department right now, you can see the Wearsby uh, Library there. But here's the thing about Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe sometimes referred to religious people as being, quote, unsaved believers, okay? Unsaved believers. He wrote a book called The Strategy of Satan, and in that book, here's one of his quotes. He says, too many believers have an intellectual religion that satisfies the mind but never changes the life. They can discuss the Bible, even argue about it, but when it comes to living by it, they fail, These are people that he called unsaved believers. They have religious activity, but no authenticity. They have religious tradition, but they've never had a transformation. They have religious rituals, but they don't have a relationship with God. They have religion, but they don't have God in their life. They are what he calls unsaved believers. So that's the type of person that I'm referring to when I talk about Jesus changing religious people. And that's the type of person that our Lord Jesus meets and interacts with in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. So we're going to work through today's message in this manner. I'm going to preach from verses 1 through 18. And then we're going to take a little jump over to John chapter 19 at the end. Um, I want to teach and just kind of explain some things along the way. I want to bring it home today with just one applicational takeaway for us. And then like we've done in every sermon in this series, you're going to hear a powerful testimony from a couple here at UBC And we're going to close, like we have every sermon in this series, with giving you a time for response, where you will be called to listen to what God is saying to your heart and respond accordingly with full surrender and openness to whatever he's calling you to do. So we're doing this because why? We believe Jesus changes people. We believe that he changes religious people. And you just may be one of the religious people that he brought you here today in order to change. So let's listen and see what happens. We're going to start out in verse 1 of chapter 3, and before we do that, it's always important to remember the context. You know, every text of Scripture falls within a context. If we don't understand the context, we can kind of misinterpret or misapply uh, various passages of Scripture. So let's remember the context. In John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, we get introduced to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We see how he came to the earth. We see that John the Baptist was preaching and preparing the way for him to come, We see that he was calling his initial disciples to come follow him, like Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. And in that way, he began his public ministry. Um, And part of his public ministry started to include doing public signs and wonders. John chapter 2, we read read about how he uh, changed water into wine at this public wedding in Cana. That would have gotten some people's attention. He started to drive the uh, greedy people out of the temple And so he he was getting attention. He was gaining notoriety. People were seeing other signs and wonders and how he was teaching with authority. But it says at the end of chapter two, listen to what it says at the end of chapter two, Um, if I can uh, say this in verse 23. At the end of chapter two, verse 23, it says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But then in verse 24, it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. All right? Some people believed in Jesus, but he didn't entrust himself to them. That is the context leading up to John chapter 3. Jesus was interacting with a people who had a type of belief, but not saving belief. He had not come into their life. So with that in mind, let's see Jesus' next interaction with a man in John chapter 3. It says in John 3 verse 1 that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So right away we meet this man, Nicodemus. Uh, we find out a couple things. He was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews. I've talked about the Pharisees before. You guys know who the Pharisees are. They, the Pharisees are religious leaders. Um, they are uh, a sect within the Jewish community of devout uh, believers in God who wanted to follow the law of Moses. They followed all 600 Mosaic laws of the Old Testament. They even added some new laws of their own that they added, and they wanted to follow those. And so they kind of set themselves apart by their pursuit of piety and obedience to the law. They became very popular among the people. They became very respected among the people. And so uh, these are the Pharisees. Uh, my my family and I, uh, leading up to um, Passion Week and Easter Sunday, we've started to watch the TV series The Chosen. Uh, Many of you have been watching this for years now. Uh, We are late on the bandwagon, but we just started, and I think it's really interesting the way that The Chosen portrays Nicodemus. I think, you know, they're doing a good job of presenting him. Now, don't hold it against me. I haven't, I've only seen like the first three or four episodes, so if it totally goes off the rails and gets heretical after that, right, this is not a full-on endorsement. I'm just saying, it's been interesting for me to kind of have my eyes open to maybe what the world would have been like for Nicodemus the Pharisee. Well, some of these Pharisees were on um, what was called the ruling council. This was otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were a group of about 70 Jewish rulers. Some of them were Pharisees. Some of them were leaders of other kinds. If we could put it in modern day terms, the Sanhedrin was kind of like a blend between uh, our U.S. Senate and the Supreme Court. Like if you could just kind of pile them together, that's what the... the Jewish Sanhedrin was like, 70 men with high elite status and power, uh, plus the Jewish high priest. And so Nicodemus is a Pharisee, but he's not just any Pharisee. He's this elite Pharisee. He's part of the Sanhedrin. Why am I giving you all that detail? Because I want you to understand this. If there ever was a religious guy in the community here, it was Nicodemus. He was a religious, very religious man. Now, what does this religious man, Nicodemus, do? Look at chapter 3, verse 2. It says, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, we're not told exactly why he came to Jesus by night. Most commentators through the years have said that Nicodemus just, you know, didn't really want to be seen associated with Jesus. The Pharisees didn't really like Jesus or his teachings, so maybe Nicodemus didn't want to be seen publicly like that, so, you know, probably a secret meeting. But when Jesus met him at night, here's what happened. Nicodemus said to him, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, so Nicodemus is this, this religious leader and he recognizes a, a man from God. No one can do these signs like you. Remember, Jesus had just turned water into wine at a public event, the wedding at Cana. Jesus had done other miracles by this point as well. So he calls Jesus a, a rabbi, a teacher from God. He's kind of giving him some sort of a credence from one teacher to another, Jesus, I recognize you as my colleague, you know? And uh, I think most people, if they would have got words like that from an elite man like Nicodemus, you know, they probably would have been like, uh, oh, shucks, thanks, Nicodemus. Like, oh, you didn't have to say that about me. You know, Jesus, from the best we can tell, didn't even, like, barely acknowledged what Nicodemus said to him and didn't really faze him. Jesus gets down to business and he basically skips all the pleasantries and says, all right, teacher guy, let's talk some theology, Okay? And he says to him in verse 3, Truly, truly, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is a really big deal, and here's why. It's because Jewish people just assumed that whenever the kingdom of God came, they were automatically in. Right? They, by nature of being a Jew, they believed that they were going to be part of the kingdom that their Jewish Messiah would bring. Simply by their heritage. Jesus says, Unless you are born again, right? It's not enough that you were born once. You've got to be born again in order to be in, in the kingdom of God. Your heritage doesn't qualify you. So today we're somewhat familiar with this whole idea of, you know, born again language in our American culture here. We, we talk about born again Christians and such. But this was the first time this had been shared. Nicodemus was hearing this for the first time, so certainly caught him off guard. So look at his response in chapter 3, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born of God when he is old? Or excuse me, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse five, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So at first, Jesus was saying, hey, if you wanna see the kingdom of God, you can't even see it till you're born again. Now he's saying, if you wanna enter it, If you want to be part of it whatsoever, you've got to be born again. And so Nicodemus would have definitely said, well, I want to be in. You know, I want to be part of that. And Jesus says you can't unless you're born of water and the Spirit. Now that phrase right there has been debated a long time in church history. Um, Some people, you know, nobody ever argues about what it means to be born of the Holy Spirit. Everybody believes that you're saved. The Holy Spirit makes you new. You're born again. God comes into your life and changes you and he starts living in you and through you. So nobody really uh, misunderstands what it means to be born of the Spirit. Everybody debates about what it means to be born of water, right? And so the many people um, will say, you know what, being born of water, that's Jesus' way of saying, hey, the way you experience new spiritual birth is that you, you have to get baptized. And so people who have embraced baptismal regeneration or that your, your baptism makes you saved, they will say, look, Jesus taught baptismal re- regeneration and he taught that you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. That's one, one perspective. Another perspective is that when Jesus says you must be born of the water and of the Spirit, some people will say, no, that's just Jesus' way uh, referencing the water of saying that you need to be cleansed and washed. And they'll talk about how Jesus maybe was referring to a, a passage in the book of Ezekiel where Jesus talked of, or where God talked about washing his people, Israel, with water and then sending his Spirit to them. Um, so those perspectives have, have been debated and You know, here's the thing, as much as as I absolutely believe that you should uh, be cleansed and washed of your sin through the blood of Jesus, and as much as I believe that you should be baptized, I don't think that's at all what Jesus is talking about right here. I think Jesus is making a simple point. I think he's saying to Nicodemus, hey, you were born from the water of your mother, and you also need to be born through the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I believe that is because, again, of the context of the passage. What has Nicodemus just asked Jesus Nicodemus has just asked Jesus about physical birth. How can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus just told Nicodemus about physical birth. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. So based on the context, it seems simple to me that Jesus is saying, hey, there's two types of birth. There's physical birth, there's spiritual birth. Just like you were born from the water of your mother, you need to be born from the spirit of God, right? There's there's gotta be a new life that occurs. And unless that new birth from the, the Spirit of God comes upon you. You're going to have no part in the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus would have been totally surprised to hear this. I imagine him thinking like, whoa, like, this is a man of God. He's performing miracles. He's obviously divine in some way. I need to listen to what he's saying. And he's telling me that something's got to happen different to me before I can become part of the kingdom of God. So I imagine Nicodemus thinking, I, I want to be, be born of the Holy Spirit. But, but how does that happen? How do I do that? Right and and I imagine him thinking like I had nothing to do with my mom birthing me. How am I possibly going to have anything to do with the Holy Spirit birthing me? And Jesus marvel or Jesus looks at him in verse 7 and he says, "Do not marvel. That I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." So Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is the one who brings new life, this born-again life. It comes from the Holy Spirit. See, Nicodemus was wondering, what do I have to do? What, what, what can I do to bring it about? What sort of religious works? Can it, can it be done by me? And Jesus is basically saying, it's like the wind, right? It's, you didn't do anything to make the wind show up. It just comes. You don't even know where it came from. It just goes. You, you can't control where it's going. I mean, guys, think about the wind. We've had some pretty big wind storms here in Dayton lately, haven't we? You drove here today. If you drove down Haynes Road, you saw that big giant tree that fell over on the house just down the street. Why? Because the wind just showed up and it's powerful and you can feel its effects. You can see uh, its, its power, the results of its power. You can hear its sound. It just shows up, but you can't make it show up and you can't control where it goes next. And that's what Jesus is saying, like, Nicodemus, you want to do all these religious things so that you can control whether or not you're born again. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit comes on you, and it's totally out of your control. There's nothing you can do to give yourself the new birth. God does it. God does it. And so this would have all been a major challenge to Nicodemus's pious religious thinking. So Nicodemus says in verse 9, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus, Jesus is, I imagine Jesus, like we read this with our, I don't know, what I'll just call our fleshly sarcasm, or I shouldn't even put you in that. I read this with my self-righteous fleshly sarcasm, like Jesus, like, come on, Nicodemus, you know. I imagine Jesus now looking at Nicodemus with just all this love in his eyes and saying, Nicodemus, you need to understand this. You are a teacher, and you need to understand the basics. You need to understand these things. He, he's telling him that being born again isn't some advanced level Part of your faith, it's entry level faith you know we We live in this world where some people will will say things like you know i yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not the born again kind. I went to uh Africa on a mission trip years ago, and I remember interacting with a girl who was there, and uh, she we talked after a ministry thing we did and and she told me that she was a Christian, I asked her like okay, like Awesome, tell me when you were born again. And she said, no, 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 no. I'm not one of the born-agains. We opened up John 3, we started to talk, and here's what she had to come to understand, and here's what you have to understand. Being born again is not some special kind of Christian. Being born again is the only kind of Christian. You must be born again, Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on to say in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Right, so Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, we've told you. We've told you. You're not receiving what we're teaching you. In other words, right now we see Nicodemus at this point is still not a believer. Verse 12 says, If I have told you earthly things and you not believe, Jesus says, How can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is starting to make this point to Nicodemus that no one can make their way to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, right? You and I, we can't get to heaven. We can't work our way to God on our own. It's not like we climb some ladder of religious deeds and then we finally get there. It's not about us making our way to heaven. Someone from heaven had to come down to us. And that's what Jesus is saying. Who is, and who is the one who has descended from heaven, it's it's Jesus, the Son of Man. He came to bring heaven to us. We can't get there on our own. We can only get there through him. So Jesus goes on to explain how a man can get to heaven and how a man can have eternal life with God, and he says this in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, we start to talk about Moses and this serpent and the wilderness. And for some of you, you were raised in in church. You probably learned the Sunday school lessons. You remember some of this teaching from the Old Testament. Others of you may have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Um, In the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, we see the Israelites, the children of Israel. And they have been set free from their slavery in Egypt. They are now wandering in the wilderness. Um, They are afraid that they're going to starve to death. And so Moses prays for the people. Um, In Numbers chapter 21, Moses prays for the people and asks God to provide for them. And God says, hey, I promise I'm going to provide for you this bread from heaven. Which, like I told the other service, like I just imagine this has got to be something on the level of Bill's Donuts, right? It's just (laughs) glorious manna, okay? Uh, God provides for them day after day this manna from heaven, and they never go hungry. They don't starve while they're wandering in the wilderness. But here's what happens. You know, they start to complain. They start to grumble. Oh, wait, you know, we miss meat. Too bad. We should have just stayed in Egypt, right? And so they start to grumble and complain. And so God sends uh, a judgment on them for their sin. And uh, he allows these serpents and vipers to come and start to bite them. And they, you know, they take in this poison and some of them start to die. So what happens in Numbers 21? Moses tells the people of Israel, um, Hey, uh, God tells Moses, I want you to make a a bronze snake and put it on this pole and lift it up in the air and anyone who looks on it in faith, they will live. Now that sounds totally crazy to us, doesn't it? I mean, if you weren't raised in church, you would think that was nuts. Moses just saying, hey folks, uh, I got this little bronze craft I made here. I'm just going to put it on a pole and raise it up. You look at this and you won't die when a snake bites you, okay? Now, that seems wacky to us, but in Moses' day and among the people of the Jews, you have to understand what was being symbolized there. The snake obviously represents the serpent and the one who brings sin and death. The, um, the bronze actually would have represented the altars of sacrifice. If you remember your stories from the Old Testament, that the, the brazen altars in the tabernacle Um, They were bronze altars where sacrifices for sin would be made. And so Jesus is saying, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. Just as the the snake was the object of sin, I'm going to become the one who becomes the object of sin. And Jesus is saying, just as they had to look in faith and be saved, so you have to look at me and be saved. When you do, you'll have eternal life. This is... The comparison that Jesus is given, Jesus is saying that that Old Testament story pictured him and the salvation that he brings. And with that Old Testament picture in mind, the next thing Jesus says is what we now know as the most popular verse that's probably ever been quoted in history. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Guys, that's the gospel summarized. People like us, we're just like the Israelites. We've rebelled against God. We've sinned against Him. We deserve to perish. We deserve to die for our sin. But God he loved us. He loved Israel. He loves us. And He sent His one and only Son to die on the cross in our place, taking the punishment for our sins, so that if we just believe upon Him, if we look to Him for salvation, then what happens? Our sins are forgiven and we receive eternal life. That's the gospel. In a nutshell, but there's more. I I think we we get so uh, caught up in remembering John 3.16, we don't really pay attention to what came before it, and most of the time we skip over what comes after it. Look at John 3.17. Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is why God sent Jesus, not to bring condemnation, but to bring salvation. And who is that salvation for? Look at verse 18. Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's who it's for. Salvation is for anyone who will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So how do sinners get out from underneath They're perishing. How do they get out from underneath their condemnation that they rightfully deserve for their sin? Here's how by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't send Jesus in order to condemn people, He sent Him to save people. Jesus is telling us people who are already condemned. You and I, we're already condemned. We've already sinned against God, rebelled against Him, and brought our own condemnation upon ourselves. Here's the thing we need to remember about the context of this story. Who is Jesus saying this to? Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus, a devout, religious, moral guy. You must be born again, lest you perish in your sins. Nicodemus didn't just need to be religious. He needed to trust in Christ. And if he did not, he would remain condemned. But if he did, then he would have eternal life. So, as religious as Nicodemus was here in John 3, we can see that he was not born again. He was not saved. At least that was his condition in John chapter 3. But that's not the end of Nicodemus' story. Most of us are familiar with Nicodemus from John 3. Maybe or maybe not. You, know, you may know this, you may not, that he's actually mentioned again in Scripture in John chapter 7 where he actually starts to defend Jesus among his peers, the Pharisees. And then we get all the way to John 19 and we see something a little different about him. By the time we get to John 19, Jesus has already died on the cross. And here's what John 19, verse 38 through 40 says, that after these things, after the crucifixion of Christ, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Now listen, Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And if you keep reading on in John 19, you'll see how Nicodemus was part of burying the body of Jesus. Now, there's a lot that I could say here and a short amount of time that I have left. So all I really want to ask you to notice right here is that Nicodemus was a different man at this point. He was once afraid to be publicly seen with Jesus. Now he's publicly identifying Jesus. He was once so religiously devout as a Jew that he would have never come close, let alone touched a dead body. Now he's here taking care of the burial wrapping of Jesus. He was once, he and his fellow Pharisees were once so consumed with shutting down Jesus and getting rid of Jesus' disciples, but now Nicodemus is associating with one of the other disciples of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus had been changed because Jesus changes people, even religious people. So with all that in mind, let me give you our one takeaway for today the one point I want you to really contemplate today, and that's this. If you find yourself in dead religion, Jesus will make you alive in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you find yourself in dead religion, Jesus will make you alive in the Holy Spirit. Listen, some of you may very much identify with Nicodemus. You are devoted to religion, but you don't have spiritual life. You go to church, but there's nothing really moving inside your heart. You're into the tradition, but there's been no transformation. You're into the religious activity, but there's nothing that reflects authenticity in your heart. You have a lot of spiritual rituals, but you know you don't really have a relationship with God. And just like Nicodemus, you can be as religious as the day is long and still be under the condemnation of your sin. You may be an unsaved believer. And there may be something, even right now, speaking to your heart, saying, you know what? That's true of you. That's true of you. And there may be something in your heart that longs to have real life, something real. Don't you want to have real life in Jesus? You know, if there's nothing real, transformative, authentic going on in our hearts and in our souls, why would we just come to church for an hour? It's a nice tradition. Oh, we want to experience Jesus, not just at church for an hour, not just in our religious traditions. We want him day by day, living within us, moving, making a real impact on our hearts and on our lives. And listen, there are so many people in this world that are religiously lost. And I want to say this to you, that, that might be true of you today. But if that is true of you today, here's the good news. Jesus came for you. He came to save sinners, even religiously lost sinners. He didn't come to condemn you. Your sin has already done that. All the wrong things you've done and all the right things you've done, but for the wrong reasons, your sin has already condemned you. Jesus came to forgive you and save you and give you new life. God so loved the world. God loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his son for you. Jesus came and left the glories of heaven and he came into this world for you. Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus paid the price of sin for you. And if you will trust him with your life and believe in his work at the cross for you and that God raised him up three days later, if you believe upon him, then the condemnation of sin can be removed from you. God loves you, and he wants to save you. So the question that I have, I want everybody in this room to think about today is this. I want you to think about this. If I asked you today, um, are you saved? Have you been born again? Would you say yes or no? If you say yes, my next question for you would say, okay, well, what, what has happened that has made you forgiven of your sin? What has happened that removed your sin? And I want you to think about how you would answer that. Because if your answer is, well, you know, I know God's going to forgive my sins because basically I'm a good person and when it all shakes out in the end, my my good deeds are probably going to be more than my bad, so surely God will accept me because I'm a good person. If that's your answer, you are religiously lost. If if your answer is, I know I'm forgiven because on such and such a date, I walked an aisle and I came forward and I prayed a prayer, I want you to understand, you are still banking your salvation on something you did, not on what Jesus did for you. You are not saved because you prayed some magic words. You are not saved because you came forward. You will only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ crucified for you. He did it for you. So your answer needs to be, when somebody asks you, how am I forgiven of my sin? Your answer needs to be, only through Jesus. Jesus is my hope. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus took my place on the cross. Jesus is my savior. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Listen, that's the truth that you need to hear today. You need to have Jesus in your life. You need to be looking to Jesus Christ for your hope for the forgiveness of your sins. Have you had that kind of a personal encounter with Jesus? I am not asking you if you've gone to church. I'm not asking you if you've walked an aisle. I'm not asking you if you've done some sort of religious thing, been baptized or whatever. I'm asking you, have you had a personal encounter with Jesus where he has given you new life in your spirit? Nicodemus had an encounter with Jesus like that and over time, eventually Nicodemus was changed. He wasn't changed by gathering with the community on the Sabbath. He wasn't changed by being born into a Jewish family and having a Christian heritage or or a Jewish heritage. He... Was changed because he had a personal encounter with Jesus. Jesus changes religious people. And he didn't just do it back then in Bible times, he still does it today in our times. And that's why I want you guys to hear yet another testimony of my friends Al and Janie, who very much were religious people and then met Jesus. Let's hear their story.
1: I grew up pretty much as a normal, average American guy. and went to church, but church had no effect on my, uh, on what I did or how I acted.
2: I was born in a Catholic family, and I attended Catholic schools for eight years. I thought, thought I was fine. Then at 18, Al and I got married, and I went to the Methodist church where he was going because he wasn't coming with me, so I was tired of dragging three kids to church by myself so we went um we went to the methodist church and got involved very involved in all kinds of things sunday school and everything what happened then is that when my youngest daughter when our youngest daughter was 15 she asked me to go to young life camp she had started going to young life on monday nights and i said well sure well off she went to camp she came home i was sitting in the parking lot at fairmont high school she jumped off the bus and got in the car and I and I said, oh, did you have a good time at camp? And she said, oh, mom, she had tears streaming down her face. And she says, mom, I found Christ this week. And I said, what? I said, you've always known Christ. I've taken you to church. We've gone to church. You've been in Sunday school all your life. And she said, mom, I don't know, but I know that it's different.
1: She uh, was reading the Bible. She was praying and she was having girls over for Bible study in her bedroom.
2: Well all these kids came in and I thought, ooh, there's a lot of kids and so we had, uh, there was a wall between the kitchen and the family room and honest to Pete, I had never heard, I was up to the wall like this just to listen to them, and I had never heard such wonderful things.
1: I didn't understand what was going on. I had never had that that kind of experience before. I was also at a kind of a, uh, kind of a restless time in my life Uh, things weren't going exactly the way i think they should have gone Um, i was looking for some something that i didn't know i could get Uh, she had something that i wanted i recognized that i wanted but i had no idea what it was or how to get it so i went looking around and asking around for for uh for places to go maybe just to, to get away and I was uh, directed to a thing called the Walk to Emmaus. It's a 72-hour uh, weekend. I actually wore gym shoes. I thought we were going on a walk, <laughs> but we didn't do that. I heard on that weekend more about the Christian faith and what Jesus expected of me. So I made a point with, with the uh, spiritual director on uh, Saturday afternoon. I said, I need to talk to you. He said, oh, fine, we'll talk. We ended up having a service in, in the, in the uh, sanctuary that night. And when we were, the service was over with, he. Called us all up front and uh, talked to us and talked to us about wonder where we were with Jesus and where we were with the Lord and this was something that was completely new to me although I had heard about this the weekend but I had never been asked that question before and I literally broke down in an uncontrollable weeping I I just it just all, it just happened I didn't wasn't planning on that at all he looked at me he said do you want me to pray for you and I couldn't talk I said I, I said yes. So I knelt on the kneeling rail. He knelt on one side, and my table leader knelt on the other side. And he prayed for me at and that point, and that point, I gave my life to Christ. It changed my whole perspective. The biggest thing that changed in my life probably is the fact that I needed to know that I was doing a lot of good stuff in church, but I was doing it for the wrong reasons, I would say. I was a, a youth counselor with my wife, and I was wearing a, th- a three-piece suit. Yes, we had three-piece suits were really a big thing, you know? And I was a three-piece suit guy. Went to church every Sunday looking great, you know? And uh, I realized that that had absolutely nothing to do with religion. That particular, that was, salvation was totally different than that. I was also told that being at 47 getting saved is very, very unusual because at that point your life is pretty much set.
2: That was the struggle that, that I was having because I wasn't yet saved when he came home and I was just, oh dear, I don't understand this yet. You know, my daughter, not my husband. How am I going to deal with this?
1: (laughs) Now she had two.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, after seeing her change life, I thought to myself, I've got to start getting more religious. So I got in my car one morning and I turned on the radio and I always listened to the the 50s station. But for some reason I thought, I wonder if there's anything else on the radio. And I started turning the knob and it came on 93.7. I listened to all the Bible teachers from June until November. I thought, I have never, ever heard this stuff. On November the 12th, 1989, I was listening to Ray Ortland, and I was coming back from work. And in the car, on the radio, he said, you know, if this program's for you, he said, I just want to, I'm going to share the gospel in a way that maybe you've had people in your family that have become saved, this word saved, and you don't understand it, then just listen to this. And I thought, wow, this sounds good. So I pulled the car down on a side street. Turned the car off and turned the radio back on and listened to him. What he said, it just, I felt the spirit. I saw my life was not really that great. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I thought I was a good person, but I knew then I wasn't. So I asked for forgiveness, and that's when I completely surrendered. <laughs> surrendered to Jesus. After that, um, I just felt, I, the one thing that God gave me, Jesus gave me, was peace. I can remember the next day, I felt such a peace in my life, in my heart, and I wasn't—I didn't fear any death. I didn't fear anything anymore.
1: You know, I, I've heard that term before, you felt like a, a weight was lifted off your shoulder. That's exactly how I felt. It was just, just the same, just like that.
2: I was 45. Al and I will be married 60 years in May. We've had an incredible life really with our kids, but you know, I mean, the way that God ordained the whole thing of us getting saved within three weeks was just so wonderful because we were so, you know, so much closer. I had all the knowledge in my head, but it just like it went down to my heart that afternoon in the car when I was listening to the radio.
1: Everything just changed. It it just, it's like, it's a different different world. It's just a different world. And uh, I don't think I don't think people understand that. Some people, I know some people are, are resistant to that salvation thing because they know they have to change and they don't want to change. But once, once they change, they'll never go back. I, never, I have never, ever uh, looked and mm-hmm. said, well, I wish I would, had, had never done this. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, He gets a hold of you.
0: Mm. Mm. Amen. Amen. When the when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, he just gets a hold of you. I love that statement. You know, some of, some of your parents are sending your teenagers off to camp hoping they find Jesus. God intends to bring some of your teenagers back home from camp to get Jesus to you. You know? You never know what the Lord's gonna do. He just it's like the wind, it just sneaks up on you. You can't control it. Guys, Jesus changes people. He changes, he changes religious people, church going. Sunday schooling three piece suit wearing <laughs> religious people, you know, like the Pharisees who really jesus says you're you're like whitewashed tombs, you look good on the outside, but really on the inside you're dead, and Jesus comes to save people like that, he comes to save people like Al and Janie, religious but dead on the inside, people like me, people like Phil, Phil was just telling our team before the services started today that it was. This idea that you can be religious but lost, that got Phil's attention, and Phil gave his life to Christ, you know, it's, it's so important that you believe Jesus' words, that you must be born again, not just be religious. So maybe the Lord wants to change you today. Maybe he wants to do something in your heart. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to respond to whatever the Lord is doing in your heart, give you an opportunity to listen to what He's saying to you. So I'd like to ask everybody in this room to just bow your head and, and close your eyes, just giving everyone in this room just kind of a sense of personal reflection. And in, this, in the privacy of this moment, I want to ask you to listen to, what, listen to what God is saying to you. Listen to what God is saying to you. Because you might come in this room today, hear this message, and you might have some sort of thought in your mind like, whoa, God's just talking right to me. Maybe you have a sense like this message was just for me, and I, I want to just say it to you like, yeah, this message is just for you. Because maybe you've been religious without a relationship. Maybe you've been active without having authenticity in your, in your faith. Maybe you've had traditions, but you haven't had a transformation. It's so possible to be religious but to be lost. And if that's you, if if you know that, that that's you, here's here's what I believe the Lord wants me to say to you today. If you have religion but not Jesus, you know what else you'll never have? You'll never have peace. Because if all you're doing is trying to work your way to God through religion, Through religion then the question that's going to be on your mind all the time is how good do I have to be how many good works do I just need one more good work than my bad works well how many do I have and you will be back and forth wondering how how good is good enough and the answer to that question is only Jesus is good enough and so maybe some of you today need to cross the line of faith where you realize for far too long you've been trusting in yourself and your own religious deeds And today, you cross the line of faith believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world for those who will believe upon him and call on his name. Maybe you need to be born again. And when you do, like Al said in his video, that burden of sin starts to fall off your back and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation is gone knowing that Jesus Christ has paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Jesus will change you, even if you're religiously lost. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray out loud. And after I pray out loud, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And when we sing, I want to give you an opportunity to receive prayer. If you need to pray to receive Christ as your Savior, or if you just need to pray about anything else, when we stand and sing, here's what I want to ask you to do. Make your way out of your aisle, make your way out of your seat, and Come back to the center double doors here in this auditorium and right outside those center double doors, we have two rooms, a prayer room for men and for women. Men will pray with men, women will pray with women. We would have people right there to receive you, pray with you, pray for you, and point you to the Jesus who loves you and will change your life. Jesus changes people, even religious people. So Heavenly Father, we stop right now and we Thank you for the life-changing work that you've done in so many of us, that you've done in me, that you've done in Phil, that you've done in Al and Janie, countless people who were caught up in religion before but didn't have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, we thank you that you came to save sinners, religious sinners. And so, Lord, today my simple request is that if there's anybody in this room who has been religious but hasn't been born again. Today, would you, like the wind, blow into their heart and show up and give them new life in you? Thank you for what you already did in the first service. And Lord, in this service, we trust that your will will be done. So we commit this response time to you in Jesus' mighty name, amen.